Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMA LOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 71. Yes, the UFC is back at the UFC Apex for their next two events. This one is headlined by a heavyweight matchup between Curtis Razorblades and Sergey Pavlovich. We got a banger co-main event as well in the bantamweight division between Song Yedong and rising pro... Well, I wouldn't really call him a prospect anymore, but Ricky Simone, who's on a five-fight winning streak and has been looking career best over his last several fights. Very much looking forward to seeing how that fight goes down, not to mention a couple other great fights as well. Before we get into it, as you always know, I like to go over the last events, uh, Lock of the Night and Dog of the Night predictions. Lock of the Night comes through, and not just for the UFC, but all of the regional shows that I covered as well. So starting with the UFC, Max Holloway comes through, gift of a line. It's insane that people continuously try to discredit him after he comes off a loss to one of the guys that might go down as the greatest featherweight to do it of all time, Alexander Volkanovsky. He is not washed. He's still only 31 years old. And even though this wasn't a crazy, striking, spectacular performance like he's had against guys like Calvin Cater in the past, this was still a very thorough win in terms of securing three solid rounds. Uh, you know, I think Arnold Allen did a lot better than most people were expecting, but I still think that uh, Max Holloway clearly won that matchup. Uh, the other three, PFL, Cage Warriors, and LFA, Lock of the Night predictions come through. So for Lock of the Night predictions on 2023, our record gets pushed to 35-9, and nine, which is an 80% hit rate. Hope to keep that up. Hope to keep the losses in the single digits, but that's going to be tough to do considering we're already at nine. But 35 and nine, not a bad run there. Dog of the night for the UFC ends up losing on Piera Rodriguez. A little bit too confident in her ability to keep the fight upright. Jillian Robertson did a great job in terms of mixing in her takedowns and getting that submission. Uh, bad pick for me. Horrible, horrible pick there. Uh, probably... Not as bad as the Bruno Brasile pick that I tried to make. God, that was a horrible performance. Hats off to anybody that was on the Denise Gomez side that night. I should have made Brandon Raw Dog Roy Val my dog of the night. I felt really damn good about him, but could not pull the trigger as an official dog of the night prediction. We go one and two on the dog of the night predictions on the regional scene as well. The one coming through was on the PFL, which was Zach Jusola, who had an absolute barn burner with Brandon Jenkins in their fight, but he was able to come out, pull through in that last round, and eventually pick up that decision victory. We also cast a plus 600 underdog on the Cage Warrior scene. It's nice to fade some of these uh, young upstarts that are on the first several fights of their career and are only going out there and finishing their opponents in the first round, and then when you spot that one opponent, coming up that could give them some resistance you sprinkle that and that's what we've done over the last several regional events and come out with some big caches as well so uh shout out to anybody on the cage warriors or the regional tiers and uh for cashing with your boy as well a reminder if you're watching this after tuesday you'll be seeing the uh early odds analysis for the following ufc's event which is ufc vegas 72 which currently does not have a main event due to hanato moikano pulling out and from what i'm hearing armand surukin will not be getting a replacement and we should be hearing in the next few days what the ufc is going to do with that card but i will still give you my early thoughts on what the odds are at a week and a half ahead of time you can see the link for that top comment below make sure you guys check that out i promise you guys will love it that will be after tuesday afternoon also 
Always love to plug the Patreon where those guys get the best predictions uh, and breakdowns first and foremost. I try to get them done ASAP for UFC, for Bellator, and for the regional shows, which is PFL, Cage Warriors, uh, and LFA. Contender Series will be starting up soon as well as Road to UFC, all of which will be covered on the PFL. Link in the description below. A great Discord community as well. Make sure you guys check it out. There you guys go. Uh, also, Bellator this week. Bellator 294 and 295. It's going to be a double header for those guys over there. I believe it's going to be Friday and Saturday night. I'll be doing a show, a joint show uh, for this week for those cards. I'll be doing it under one podcast. Don't worry. Everything will be timestamped so you guys can skip over to whatever fight you want to hear about. But I'll be dropping it in as one podcast either on Wednesday or Thursday. I'll be starting dropping those breakdowns on the Patreon tomorrow, aka Monday. So if you're on the Patreon, you're welcome. You'll be getting those breakdowns much sooner than the public is. Again, that's the benefit of going out there and uh, supporting your boy through more fashions than just hitting that like and subscribe below or dropping a comment which i greatly appreciate as well and we're close to hitting that 6,000 subscriber mark again on the youtube so if you haven't already again over 45 percent of you guys that watch the podcast still aren't subscribed simply just hit that subscribe button it does a lot for you boy i promise you i greatly appreciate it thank you guys for that and last thing i'm going to plug here real quick uh i do a main event and three best money line bets uh, article for godzillawins.com i'll have the link in the description below those come out every wednesday and thursday wednesdays i drop the main event one thursday i drop the three best money line bets you'll see that in the link to, uh, in the description below great company that i've been working for over the last little bit and uh has given me a an avenue to uh, drop these breakdowns for you guys in written form something that i used to do a lot before um so make sure you guys check it out every week wednesdays and thursdays i'll have the link in the description below whenever those podcast or whenever those articles drop all right enough with the plugs let's get right into the breakdowns which i know you guys are mainly here for so let's get into it kicking things off in the bantamweight division we got six and two brady he stand going up against 12 and four bat grill dana Starting off on the Brady He Stand side, he is a product of the Six Jitsu Gym, gym which I believe is out of the Washington State area, uh, where he came up with guys like Michael Chiesa, as well as Juliana Pena, headed by Rick Little. He's a very solid wrestler with a very good control game when he gets that top position, or even the back like he did against his last opponent, Fernie Garcia. Now the intriguing thing about Brady Heastan's last couple of years is the fact that he actually took uh, was a part of the Ultimate Fighter uh, and did the entire show with the torn ACL. He made it all the way to the finale where he ended up losing to Ricky Tercios and then he took off about a year and a half before returning and that obviously includes surgery and rehab and all that but he returned successfully against Fernie Garcia where he ended up taking a big shot right off the bat but managed to bounce back, turn it into a takedown and then eventually grind out the rest of that fight and win it via decision. That is usually how he fights. He's a grapple-heavy guy. His stand-up game is still coming along. But only at 23 years old, you got to expect that his whole game is slowly starting to come together. And the fact that the, his foundation is the grappling realm, he should be a very bright prospect that will have a ton of success on the UFC scene. 
On the flip side for Batgaril Dana, who seems to have his back up against the cage. He's been spending the last several months down in Arizona at Fight Ready MMA, which is one of the better gyms uh, available for most high-level fighters to be training at. Uh, the most interesting um, training partner that he has is the fighter that he lost his UFC debut against in Hali Alatang. Now, both those guys seem to have gotten uh, pretty familiar with one another and helping each train each other, knowing that Haile Alatong has a decent wrestling game and Batgaril has a very solid striking game. I'm interested to see how much Dana has been able to pick up since training down at Fight Ready because he's going to be dealing with a big grapple-heavy approach from his opponent this weekend. At his best, Dana Batgaril is able to uncork with big combinations and big strikes, which allowed him to actually knock out three straight opponents in a row before jumping onto this two-fight losing streak that he's currently on. Unfortunately, in this two-fight losing streak that he's on, he's been outstruck by both opponents. He got knocked out by Chris Gutierrez, and then at UFC 275 in June, he got outstruck by Kyung Ho Kong over 15 minutes and lost that decision as well. He's really got to round out his striking game and figure out how to make that power more efficient over 15 rounds rather than just relying on knockouts to get his hand raised. Knowing that he's training over there at Fight Ready, gotta believe he's working on the rest of his game and I'm curious to see how he's improved going into this weekend. I've been quite big on Brady Heastan throughout his career, and uh, I think that we're going to continue to see a better version of him. Now that he is getting a little bit more active with getting uh, in the cage, fully healed from that ACL surgery he had after his Ultimate Fighter run, I think that we'll see an even better version of him this weekend. I fully expect him to get clipped early in this matchup, but I'm hoping that his reactive uh, response, just like it was in his last fight, is quick enough for him to get in on a double leg, drag the fight back to the ground, and get back into a safe position, and then rinse and repeat that throughout this fight. Dinabat Grill is a great striker and has massive power, but he seems to lack in other aspects of the game, which is where I think Brady Heastan is going to be able to take advantage. I'm a little bit skeptical, so my confidence isn't super high on this spot because of the fact that Dana has been working at Fight Ready, and I know those coaches do a phenomenal job in terms of preparing their opponents for whatever challenges lays ahead of them, but I still feel like Brady is going to be a much superior grappler here, and he'll be able to get this fight into his realm more often than not, grinding this fight over 15 minutes and winning via decision. Moving over to the women's flyweight division, we got 12-4 Priscilla Casuera going up against 15-4 Karine Silva. Starting off on the Priscilla Cachoeira side, who's been calling MMA Masters home for the last couple of training camps. She's riding a two-fight winning streak. Now, I get it. Some people might say that it's only a one-fight streak that she should be on. I don't know even if you can call that a streak, but her fight against ji Yoon Kim, she got doubled up on strikes, but the judges seem to have scored her forward aggression and forward pressure over the fact that ji Yoon Kim was doubling her up on strikes. That's Priscilla Cachoeira's game. She crashes forward. She fights like her nickname, the zombie girl. She crashes forward. She looks for big shots. She tries to knock you out. If she doesn't, she's content with just landing more damage and hopefully getting the decision victory, just like she did against Ji Yoon Kim. Last time around, she looked very good when she knocked out Ariane Lipsky when she eventually goaded her into a war and a brawl within the pocket. And that's where we know Priscilla thrives the most, where she's able to throw haymakers and eventually land that big one like she did against Lipsky and put her lights out. 
She looks in tremendous physical condition, the best she's looked in her career. And I think a lot of that could be pointed with the fact that she's been training at MMA Masters and getting along with the strength and conditioning program. I'm curious to see how the rest of her game has started to flesh out as we know that the weakness in her game is the grappling. The two finishes that she suffered via, or sorry, two losses she suffered via finish have come via submission, most recently by Jillian Robertson, which was three fights ago when she got rear naked choked. Curious to see how that has improved going into this matchup against Karene Silva, who is on a very good winning streak right now. But the big part of her game that I find very interesting, something that you don't see with a, w- a lot of women's MMA fighters, is the fact that there are so many finishes on Karene's record. Out of the 19 professional fights that she has, only one of them has seen the scorecards. She's either going out there and getting the finish, or she's going out there and getting finished herself. She's on a submission streak right now where she's been able to lock up the choke, whether it's the guillotine that eventually got her UFC contract on the contender series, or the beautiful darts choke that she was able to get on Poliana Battaglio to force her to tap out as well. She is very active with finding submissions, and even though her striking game seems like it could use some work, she's been doing a good enough job in terms of getting fights into the grappling realm where she can take advantage of her opponent's slip-ups and snatch onto their limb or their neck and take it on home with her. I love her grappling style, I love how aggressive she is, and it's sure to be fireworks every time she steps in the cage, maybe not just with the fists that are thrown, but the submissions that are thrown her opponent's way from the Karina Silva side. I feel like violence would be the spot to hone in on for this matchup. You know, both women are, they love to go for the finish. I'd say more so Karene Silva than Priscilla Cachuera, but Priscilla wants to knock you out with every single shot that she throws. I feel like she's going to overextend on one of her strikes here, which will allow that takedown opportunity for Silva to come in. She'll be able to drag this fight to the ground. And then from there, I think she's going to eventually open up that submission opportunity for herself. Like I said earlier, I think it was, I think two of the last three losses on Cachuera's record could have come via submission i'm expecting karenia to do the same here by locking up a submission probably in the second round of this matchup i'm gonna go karenia silva by submission but fight doesn't go to decision probably the spot that i'm gonna like the most here Next up in the featherweight division, we got 7-0 Francis Marshall going up against 11-2 William Gomez. Starting off on the Francis Marshall side, he trains under the tutelage of former UFC fighter Kurt Pellegrino. Now, Kurt hasn't fought in a long time, and he's taken up a coaching uh, kind of role over the last several years. But the one fighter that he's been focusing on for the last 10 years is Francis Marshall. Francis Marshall is 24 years old and apparently he joined forces with Kurt Pellegrino when he was only 13 years old and he's been able to get crafted into this perfect fighter that we've been seeing to this point. He had a dominant victory on the contender series where he landed a plethora of takedowns as well as 110 significant strikes against his opponent, beating him up on the mat and even outstriking him on the feet in the third round to secure that contract. In the last fight that he had, which was his UFC debut against tough veteran Marcelo Rojo, he did a very good job in terms of striking with him in the first round, or at least the first half of the first round, landing a takedown, grinding him out from that top position, and then eventually finding that knockout blow in the second round. 
It was a beautiful performance from Francis Marshall, who I, you know, was a little bit lower on coming out of the contender series in terms of his striking prowess. I thought that he was mainly a, uh, a grappler who really needed to get fights to the ground to have success because I only really just saw like a one-two from him, a jab cross from most of his regional tape. But we saw a lot more of his striking prowess in that Marcelo Rojo fight, which is impressive considering that was his toughest fight to date. On the flip side for William Gomez, he made a successful UFC debut against uh, Jeremy Ahrens. Uh, I might actually be getting that fighter's first name wrong, but it was against Ahrens. It was a spot where both fighters came in on short notice to help fill out that UFC Paris card, and Gomez uh, enjoyed the fact that he was a fellow Frenchman, so it was a no-brainer to get a guy like that onto the card. He's riding a very solid, I believe, eight or nine fight winning streak now where he's been able to take his opponents to the ground and just grind them out. He looks like he has the frame of a kickboxer and sometimes he even tricks people in his regional shows where he's wearing those Muay Thai shorts, but he looks to quickly get, get fights to the ground and try to drag or grind his opponents out from that top position. He, most of his takedowns seem to come from that clinch realm where he's able to implement trips and throws, uh, and it's worked out pretty well for him thus far. From the striking realm, it seems like he mainly just throws kicks. He has a Sanda background as well, which just goes to show that he's a little bit more comfortable throwing kicks than punches, staying on the outside and trying to utilize his height and his range, which is usually something he has an advantage in in these featherweight matchups. And he also trains out of the MMA factory, which is known for fighters like Nasruddin Imovov and former heavyweight uh, interim champion Cyril Gan. But William Gomez does not fight like those guys. He has a decent striking game, but the most of, majority of his success comes from the grappling realm. I'm curious to see how that translates now that he's going to be fighting more of these North American-based fighters, who we all know are probably the better grapplers based on, you know, regions of the world other than of course Dagestan and those Russian fighters as well. I'm pretty big on Francis Marshall in this spot and I feel like we're going to see a huge difference between the North American wrestling and the French wrestling that uh, William Gomez has been uh, learning and picking up on and implementing throughout his career thus far but he has not fought a grappler like Francis Marshall to this point. I think Francis will be hip to those clinch type takedowns that Gomez likes to to initiate i think whenever they do get initiated in that grappling sequence or that clinch sequence we'll see francis dig his underhooks get that uh, reversal push his opponent up against the cage you know snap on down to the double leg drag this fight to the ground and do good work from on top not often do we see William on his back, and I think that's where he's going to find a lot of uh, this fight taking place with him on his back. The one thing that obviously does scare me is that long, lanky striking that uh, Gomez likes to do with his Sanda background. But I feel like uh, a, a guy like Marshall, again, still relatively new in his game in terms of only being seven and zero, but is very much uh, groomed in a in a very disciplined way, especially with a guy like Kurt Pellegrino in his corner. They'll see those potential spots that can be taken advantage of whenever Francis tries to close the distance but I think it's just a matter of time before he gets in on the hips drags this fight to the ground and it has some good work from there even in the striking room you know I don't know how successful Gomez can be just by treading the outside and just using kicks every now and then I'm sure that Francis is going to be able to explode into a counter and land some big shots and probably even hurt uh, Gomez as we saw Gomez hurt in his last fight against Aaron's and as we've seen him hurt in previous fights which is when he goes to his desperation takedowns which are not going to be there against Francis Marshall so even though Gomez has a little bit more experience than Marshall here I think I think Marshall has way more potential and I think we'll see him slowly start to achieve it uh, you know starting with 
that big win he had against Marcelo Rojo in his last fight in his UFC debut and then chained into this matchup against William Gomez. I'm thinking Francis Marshall by decision. Possible finishing opportunity may open up itself if Gomez is not as reliant off of his back as he is from that top position. But official prediction, I'm going to go Francis Marshall by decision. Heading up to the heavyweight division, we got 8-2 Mohamed Usman going up against 4-0 Junior Tafa. Starting off on the Mohamed Usman side, he's coming off of a win on the Ultimate Fighter finale where he uh, defeated Zach Pauga via knockout to win that competition. Uh, he's a 34-year-old who's had some decent level of experience uh, you know, on the PFL and World Series of Fighting stages. Uh, he does not fight like his brother Kamaru Usman though. Muhammad Usman is more so of a striker who likes to utilize a low-output kickboxing game and try to pick apart his opponent from distance. If he requires the wrestling, that's when you'll see him pull it out, but it's definitely not as effective as his brother Kamaru's game. I wasn't the highest on him coming out of the Ultimate Fighter given his lackadaisical approach in some of his matchups, but it seems like he's really starting to round out his skill set, but we still gotta sit back and see what else he has to bring to the table now that he's finally on the big show. Speaking of making it to the big show, Junior Tafa makes his UFC debut less than a year after making his professional MMA debut. Does it have to do with the fact that he is the brother of UFC heavyweight Justin Tafa? Maybe. Maybe he's the prodigy of uh, Mark Hunt as well, which is why he's probably gotten the call up to this point. Who knows? But then again, we all know on the flip side that the UFC does have an issue with Mark Hunt. I have no reason why the UFC is looking to invest in such a young fighter, especially this raw and green in their career. He's been going up against guys that have been willingly uh, accepting the role of punching bag and he's been making it look good. The most adversity he faced was his second fight against Kevin Fitial, who went dragged uh, Junior Tafa into the second round, had some grappling success, but didn't seem to have the cardio nor the top control to keep Junior Tafa down and grind that fight out. But the Tafa takedown defense, the, the mechanics are there, but I just don't know how it's going to work out against guys that he's inevitably going to be facing that are much higher level than himself. He's a solid kickboxer. He has good knockout power. He's fought on the glory kickboxing scene. Although, I must say, when I've seen him fight guys that I at least have heard of, he comes out on the losing end. Again, I'm not sure why the UFC decided to bring him in this early. He was actually scheduled to fight in uh, February against Waldo Cortez Acosta. Unfortunately, he injured himself, something that was pretty severe to the point that he needed surgery. And he that surgery and recovery and injury and all that stuff happened back in February. So why he's back so soon after that, no idea either. I wonder how serious it actually was or if it was just something very minor. I've been looking over the internet, could not find exactly what it was, but there are some concerns in terms of his health. But the big concern is obviously his rawness in the MMA cage. I don't care how good of a striker you are. You need to be well-rounded when you make it to the UFC and he might get his wake-up call this weekend. Even though I'm not a big fan of Mohamed Usman, I think it's just crazy that there's so much love on the Junior Tafa side. Yeah, okay, he should be able to go out there and maybe knock him out, but like this is MMA. This is not just kickboxing. And we saw lesser opponents on the regional scene take Junior Tafa down. 
Now he's fighting Mohamed Usman, who's a, again, mediocre fighter, but has a tremendous amount of experience, has been doing this MMA thing way longer than Junior Tafa has, and has fought way stiffer level of opponents in the past as well. So the fact that the opening line, which is crazy, that it it opened up as a pick but then got extremely steamed in Junior Tafa's favor, bringing that line up to about plus 235 for the Usman side, then action coming in on Usman to bring it back down to a pick side. Uh, I still think that Usman should probably be around that minus 150, minus 170 mark just off of his MMA experience alone. I don't know if I'll be pulling the trigger here myself, but because I'm just not a... Uh, I'm not big on Mohamed Usman, but we got to clarify that like you can't just step into the UFC off of less than a year of MMA competition and expect to be successful even against the middle of the heavyweight division. So I'm going to go Mohamed Usman here, Mohamed by decision, maybe even by TKO from that top position if he's able to get a dominant position. But I think that Usman should get his hand raised in this fight against a guy who just had his professional MMA debut back in July of last year. Heading over to the women's featherweight division, we got 16-4 Carol Hosa going up against 8-2 Norma Dumont. Starting off on the Carol Hosa side, she's bouncing back from her first UFC loss with a solid decision victory over Lena Landsberg. One thing I've come to realize about Carol Hosa is the fact that she can fight in pretty much any realm in MMA. She can go out there and throw triple-digit significant strikes if she needs to, as she did against Petch Cohea uh, a couple fights ago. Or she can go out there, land takedowns, and grind her opponents out over 15 minutes if she needs to, like she did against Lena Landsberg and Jocelyn Edwards. She's very well-rounded, and at 28 years old, she's really starting to bring her game together. My big question mark with her is how she deals with the physicality of the higher level fighters. We saw her come up short against Sarah McMahon when she was unable to stop the takedowns or get back to her feet. She is going to be fighting bigger women, especially taking this fight up at featherweight, which is not a weight class she normally fights at. I'm curious to see how she will deal with fighting a, a bigger woman or a stronger woman. From the outside looking in, doesn't look like she does the best, but her technical skills should be able to save her in certain spots. Will it be able to this weekend? Who knows? She goes up against Norma Dumont, who is one of the very few fighters that is uh, consistently fighting at 145 pounds. We know that weight class is still a very big question mark, with mainly the reason being Amanda Nunes gets to carry around two belts whenever they try to promote some of her fights, trying to make her a little bit more appealing to the masses. But they're just really, there isn't even rankings for the women's featherweights because there just are not enough to actually promote or have a full division. So the fact that they're still keeping them around is a big question mark to me. I believe that they're hoping women like Norma Dumont or even Carol Hosa, who might be making a home at featherweight now, get on a bit of a streak that will it will eventually entice some sort of an intriguing matchup against Amanda Nunes. But Norma Dumont, she is a decent fighter. She has good striking. She throws in good combinations. She's able to walk down her opponents when she has that confidence and feels like she's the better striker like she did against Aspen Ladd and Daniel Wolf. And even in the fight against uh, Macy Kiasson, she had some good striking moments there. But Kiasson was able to stifle her against the cage. And I'm not sure what was up with Norma that night considering that she just didn't seem to have much of a sense of urgency until that third round, until it was a little bit too late. I'm still trying to get a feel on what kind of fighter she is, right? 
we we didn't really get to see her uh te- or get tested too much against grapplers like Felicia Spencer or Aspen Ladd as one Felicia Spencer didn't even shoot a single goddamn takedown and then Aspen Ladd was just too you know I don't know she was just stuck in like first gear and really couldn't just get past it or Aspen Ladd's just not that good and now we're just finding out especially with the fact that she ended up uh, losing her last fight as a very big favorite on the PFL just a couple weeks ago but Norma Dumont still a bit of a wild card in my eyes wondering if she'll end up making weight this week and hopefully she does that's usually been her biggest enemy since coming to the UFC but she has a solid striking game solid enough grappling game we'll see if she can get a run going to actually make some noise in this featherweight division this one's a tough one for me to truly settle on a side for, right? The the big point here being the, the physicality and how they match up here. Uh, Rosa, I feel like, is a better fighter overall. I think she is better with her output. I think she's a better technical striker. I think she's a better ground specialist as well. However, can she implement her ground game given the strength that Norma Dumont, Dumont is going to uh, um, experience here, right? Uh, this fight is taking up uh, place up at featherweight, which is where Norma Dumont is normally fighting at because she just can't cut down to 135 or has had so many failed attempts down to 135 that the UFC is just like, fuck it, keep fighting at 145. So Carol Hosa is coming up a weight class here, something she's not used to doing. And we saw, we saw how much she struggled against Sarah McMahon and the physicality that she brought to the table. So I, I'm still going to lean with the Hosa side, thinking that she has more paths to victory here. I'm hoping that she utilizes her footwork and her output and stays away from the big strikes and even the clinching positions that Norma Dumont might look to implement here. And I'm thinking that we're going to see a Hosa outstriker here win this fight via decision. But it's a close one, just as the odds indicate. Maybe the over two and a half might not be a bad way to go about this fight, but I think that Hosa uh, will end up putting together a much better body of work and winning this fight via decision. Very low confidence, though. Heading down to the men's bantamweight division, we got 28 10 and 1 Hani Yaya going up against 12 and 2 Montel Jackson. Starting off on the Hani Yaya side, he's coming off a two-fight winning streak right now where he was able to submit Ray Rodriguez back in 2021 and grind out Kyung Ho Kang back in 2022. He is a jiu based fighter, and I like to call him mini Damian Maya as he pretty much fights exactly like Damian. He throws big winging hooks on the feet to either knock you down or try to get you close enough so that he can change levels and drag his fights to the ground. But it's obvious that he thrives in the jiu-jitsu realm, which is where he does his best work. Again, his wrestling game, not the greatest. A lot of it comes from desperation takedowns or even just sacrifice, uh, you know, jumping for guillotines or just flopping to his back, uh, diving for legs, diving for leg locks, whatever it is. He's just trying to wrap you up because he feels confident enough that he can either pull off a submission from his back or eventually find that reversal required to get on top of you and then just grind you out from that position. His gas tank has always been sketchy, but he always manages to kick that next gear if he's able to get a hold of you and get on top of you. He's a master at control, and even at 38 years old, everybody wants to count him out, but he still has it in him to go out there and give a vet lesson if that's what's required. On the flip side for him is the opposite of a veteran, a guy who is, in my opinion, still stuck in that prospect stage of his career, Montel Jackson. Montel's riding a three-fight winning streak with his biggest win coming in his last performance against Julio Arce. 
gotta say though it was a bit of an underwhelming performance as the hype and potential that a lot of people have given Montel Jackson since coming to the UFC doesn't seem to be really living up to it you know he's taken two losses in the UFC and the two losses throughout his career uh, and they're against very good guys and guys like Brett Johns and Ricky Simone guys who have been able to take him to the ground and grind him out but when he's beating most of his opponents if he's not knocking them out like Jesse Strader he's just grinding them out but then again he does have a plethora of knockdowns on his record through his seven UFC fights he's not or he's knocked down uh, he's recorded a knockdown seven times he has crazy power in his hands, but it seems like he lacks a little bit of that killer instinct. Although it did seem like he was trying to get Felipe Kolarish out of there with everything he got, but Felipe had none of it as he continued to stay in that fight. Even in the JP Bays fight, he knocked him down four times, but just kept getting wrapped up whenever he tried to follow him to the ground. So I don't know what's going on with Montel. I don't know if he'll ever reach that uh, you know, high potential that a lot of people feel for him. I've I'm, I'm I'm curious I just want to see how he does as he continues to progress through his career he's 30 years old he'll still have a bunch of time ahead of him if that's what he you know if he continues to progress in the UFC and doesn't go on any losing streak of any sort but I, I still have my questions about him a little bit I get it in the in the Jackson background I probably made it look like I was gonna fade him in this spot I'm not gonna fade him but nor am I gonna pay the big chalk on him here either this is a sketchy and tough matchup for him and the fact that if Yanya gets a hold of him he could he could latch on to something and get into a really good position and start grinding him out like it's possible but Montel Jackson I believe his speed is going to be too much for Hani here his power will end up being too much for him him as well and then hopefully using his kicks to keep Yaya on the outside will allow him to stay safe at distance and then just pick him apart down the pipe with his big shots I'm going to go Jackson by knockout but Again, this is a, a sketchy one. I'm still waiting for Jackson to fully flesh out and become that that fighter a lot of people expect him to be. But as of right now, I'm a little bit apprehensive in terms of taking big chalk on him. He should win this fight and he should find that knockout. So official prediction, Montel Jackson by knockout, let's say second round. Next up in the lightweight division, we got 22-6-2 Ricky Glenn going up against 19-10 Christos Yagos. Now, Ricky Glenn is coming off another long layoff where he unfortunately had to deal with another injury around that hip area, something that has been bugging him for the last half of his career. Now, if you guys remember, he took off nearly three years off or it might have even been three and a half years after 2018 when he had to have a very uh, major reconstructive surgery for his hip and he came back, fought twice, knocking out Joaquin Silva in 37 seconds and then going to a draw against Grant Dawson. But after that, he suffered another injury in that same general area, which has forced him out of the cage for a pretty long time now. If he is able to get himself in order and get his body back into working condition, the guy is a very solid fighter. He's a good striker. He's a great grappler as well. He's, you know, he's not amazing at anything specifically, but he's very good at meshing everything together. And his gas tank makes him very difficult to deal with over the course of 15 minutes. Just ask Grant Dawson, who was seconds away from getting put out clean from a very tight choke that Ricky Glenn had on him in the dying seconds of that matchup. But Ricky was able to stuff the takedowns late of Grant and really put it on him in that third round, getting a 10-8 on two judges' scorecards, which eventually scored it a draw. 
Ricky Glenn has been around for a while. He even uh, fought on a regional show up here in my neck of the woods, uh, a promotion that I was uh, working with closely, uh, and he upset the hometown guy with a very solid all-around, uh, uh, you know, striking and mixed martial arts approach. For years, he had been training out of Team Alpha Male as well, but it seems like he moved out to, I want to say, Iowa, uh, where he's originally from, and he opened up his own gym there. So he's been doing a lot of self-training with a lot of the coaches and uh, staff that he came up with it as well. But at this stage in his career, he's a solid enough all-around fighter that he can still do good work. On the flip side, Christos Yagos is on a two-fight losing streak now. And even though he's been training with the guys over there at Killcliffe FC, I just don't know if they can do enough for his cardio game, which seems to be the, you know, the, the, the Achilles heel in his game. He's a solid grappler, which is where he usually does his best work by taking opponents to the ground and either grinding them out or finding a submission like he was able to do against Sean Soriano, which was actually his last uh, victory. But he got put out by Armand Sarukian, which we can't blame him for. And then quickly choked out by Thiago Moises in his last fight, which, again, we can't really blame him for considering the skill difference there. He's a very difficult fighter to deal with early because of his grappling style, because of his wrestling. But his striking game needs some work still as it's that usual uh, wrestler striker style of striking, which is just wide winging hooks looking to close the distance and just waiting for his opportunity to eventually change levels and try to drag you to the mat. I'm sure that the guys over there at Killcliff FC are trying to round out his skill set, but I don't know if he's at the stage of his career where he can pick those skills up effectively and be successful at this level in the UFC. I want to have more confidence on the Ricky Glenn side here, but given the fact that he just keeps dealing with hip uh, surgery and hip injury after hip injury, it's a little bit concerning, right? Like you, that's a vital part of your body to be able to uh, utilize in a mixed martial arts environment, especially with the amount of takedowns that he's likely going to have to stuff and deal with against Christos Yagos here. If Glenn is not even close to 80% in this matchup, he could end up fumbling the bag. But if he comes 80% or more in this fight, he might succumb to a takedown or two in the early goings of this fight. But he has good enough defense, good enough get-ups, and good enough takedown defense and cardio in the latter half of this matchup that he should start to take over and maybe even pick up a finish in the you know probably in the second or third round of this fight. He's the better striker. He has good enough grappling. He has good enough defensive grappling. But most importantly, he has the cardio edge in this matchup. And I think that's going to be enough for him to deal with the early onslaught, come on late, and then eventually get that, I'm going to call it third round finish over Christos Yagos. But again, I want to be more confident. It's just the constant injuries of Ricky Glenn. And if his body is going to be able to handle it and still perform at a high level, Against the guy in Christos Yagos, again, he's not a he's not a world beater by any means, but he's strong with his wrestling, and he has decent jujitsu. I just don't think it's on the level of Ricky Glenn. It just depends on what kind of Glenn we get on in the cage this Saturday. Official prediction: Ricky Glenn round three TKO. Just be cautious. Moving over to the welterweight division, we got eleven two and one Jeremiah Wells going up against eleven and four Matthew Semmelsberger. Starting off on the Jeremiah Wells side, he is on a very solid streak now, especially since entering the UFC. He's won three straight fights in a row and put all three of his opponents clean out. Two of them via knockout, which was the Warley Alves and Court McGee fights, or the Blood Diamond fight where he choked him out clean and was able to secure that victory via technical submission. 
Jeremiah Wells is a BJJ black belt, but you wouldn't be able to tell that off of the Alves and McGee fights because he just crashes the distance and closes the pocket with big power punches, which eventually knock his opponents out clean. But given his explosive style, you expect that to start to drop off as fights go deeper into the rounds. And that's how he has lost his two fights, both via decision. As when opponents are able to stay away from that big power of his, they're able to outlast him and then really pick it up in the the later rounds and later minutes of the fight where they're able to outwork him and pick up decision victories. With Jeremiah Wells, he either can knock you out or if he feels like he has a significant grappling advantage over you like he did against blood diamond he'll look to take it to the ground and try to strangle you but at 36 years old i think it's just a matter of time before he hits a wall and uh, a guy can evade those big strikes of his stay out of too much trouble on the ground if he looks to get the fight to the ground and eventually wear him down and maybe even finish him later on in the fight Matthew Semmelsberger is coming off the biggest win of his career when he decisioned Jake Matthews in his last fight. I believe he landed over three knockdowns in that matchup, unable to finish Jake Matthews, but was in control of that fight pretty much every minute. He came in as a pretty hefty underdog that night, but that just goes to show the recency bias that we normally see in MMA, considering that Jake Matthews was a massive or a big underdog to his previous opponent, uh, Andre Fialio, knocked him out in impressive fashion, and then came in as a big favorite against Matthew Samosberger and... Now he'll probably end up being the underdog in his next fight. Samosberger is the underdog in this fight, but I think he has a very good chance to get his hand raised. He's a very solid all-around fighter with good striking, good explosivity as well, and a good gas tank to go out there and fight the full 15 minutes if he needs to. He really had to dig down deep against AJ Fletcher to pull out the win that night, but even against a guy like Alex Morono, he was getting beat to the punch more often than not, and given Morono's high output style, it was hard for Matthew Summersberger to keep up with him. But for the most part, Matthew does a great job in terms of sniping his opponents from distance with big shots, dropping them, hurting them, and possibly even finishing them, which makes him such a threat. At 30 years old, you gotta believe he's getting closer and closer to his peak, and as long as he can get his skill set closer to his physical traits or physical abilities, I think this guy could at least crack the top 15 at a certain point if he can put together a couple another uh, another couple big wins. Yes, I'll raise my hand and say that I faded Jeremiah Wells in his last fight against Court McGee. It's all about that. Yes, this guy has first round finishing power, but if it gets stretched into the second or third rounds, things could get iffy. And that's the approach that I've been taking uh, against Jeremiah Wells in some of his matchups, specifically that Court McGee one. I'm going to take it here again uh, with uh, Matthew Samuelsberger, who I believe is obviously younger and not as slow as Court McGee, has knockout power of his own, will have the size advantage here, so maybe he should be able to keep some distance and keep Jeremiah Wells on the outside. Maybe stuff a couple of takedowns once Jeremiah Wells realizes that his punches are not getting through. And then as this fight gets into deep waters, Samuelsberger will start to come on, land his big strikes, and potentially even knock out Jeremiah Wells himself. So this is a sketchy one, but I do like the fight doesn't go to decision the most. I think no matter who ends up winning, it'll likely come via finish. I'm going to go with Samuelsberger here, though, as I think he'll come on late and put away Jeremiah Wells after Wells is exhausted from trying to find the chin of uh, Matthew Samuelsberger, but unsuccessfully not in the take, or, sorry, unsuccessfully uh, whiffing on those big shots, allowing Samuelsberger to take over late and win via TKO. Yeah, I'm going to say more so TKO. 
Next up in the women's flyweight division, we got Yasmin Lucindo coming in with a 13-5 and record. She's going up against Brogan Walker, who comes in with a 7-3 and record. Starting off on the Lucindo side, she was put in a pretty tough spot in her UFC debut where she had a, uh, a debut fight against another debutant in Yasmin Yaragui, uh, but they were placed third last on the main card at UFC San Diego and they sure brought the heat. A lot of people were questioning why those two fighters had gotten, had been given that slot, but those women went out there and sh- showed out. Lucindo is normally a grapple-heavy fighter who looks to get her opponents to the mat, look for that dominant position, and either get a TKO submission or eventually just grind them out and win her fights via decision. She's very tough to deal with from that top position, that's for sure. In the striking round, which is something that we saw a lot more from her in the Yadagui fight, she throws a little bit with the reckless abandon. She throws with a lot of power, not too much technical skill there, but a lot of aggression and forward pressure that would normally break a lot of the women in this flyweight division. But that night, Yadagui was just too good for her. She was too good with her footwork, with her speed, and her technical striking advantage that she was able to catch Lucindo more often than not taking home that decision victory but i think that at 21 years old yasmin a lot of people might think that she's coming into the ufc a little bit early but this woman is a fighter she very much enjoys the aspect of going out there and punching each other in the face but her technical skills are slowly going to catch up with her ability to to fight and actually take damage and try to dish it out in return and the fact that she's been working with somebody like Verna Jandiroba gives me confidence that she's going out there and just trying to round out her skill set as best as possible. I wouldn't be surprised if we see her go back to her bread and butter of her grappling game this weekend to try to pick up her first win in the UFC. On the flip side for Brogan Walker she's coming off a loss at at the Ultimate Fighter finale where she ended up getting TKO'd by Juliana Miller in the third round of their matchup. Brogan Walker is a solid striker who seems a little bit too patient at times in terms of picking her spots from distance and try to picking her and trying to pick her apart. Uh, sorry, trying to pick her opponents apart from distance with the single shots that she likes to throw out there. Her grappling game could still use a little bit of work, but she's shown some decent enough takedown defense on the regional scene. But I wonder what would it it feels like as though like she struggles when opponents uh, blend the, the takedowns behind the strikes a little bit better, or at least behind some more activity. On the Ultimate Fighter, we saw one of her opponents, I think it was Laura Glardo, who just kept going for naked takedown after naked takedown, and she was unsuccessful in terms of securing it. Her previous opponent on the Ultimate Fighter, Hannah Gee, was successful in landing a takedown in that second round and was doing very good work from on top. So, uh, and then Juliana Miller, she was able to get takedown after takedown and do solid work from on top as well. But there are times where we see her have solid defense and other times where it seems to go completely out the window. She's a very solid fighter who even has a win over Miranda Maverick on her record from earlier in her career. Just shows, you know, she was skilled at a certain point, but she also has losses to Pearl Gonzalez and Aaron Blanchfield on her record. Obviously, the latter being a acceptable loss, but the Pearl Gonzalez one, maybe not so much. She's a solid all-around fighter, but I just don't know if she has what it takes to stay relevant in the UFC's women, UFC women's flyweight division. I think Lucindo has a pretty bright future in the UFC. And the fact that she's being brought along the way that she is with the UFC, again, maybe not so much that Yadagui fight, but this Rogan Walker fight is a great fight at this point in her career. 
she has 15, 16, 17 fights and she's only 21 years old. But the level of experience that she's going to accrue from this fight, win or lose, is going to be very valuable for her as she continues on in her professional MMA career. I believe that she's going to go back to her grapple heavy approach, you know, but that's going to have to come behind some strikes. And I think those that like that wild winging style of approach with her striking will catch Brogan Walker off guard and that will allow her to change levels and drag this fight to the ground. I think Lucindo is very tough to deal with. And I like the fact that she's training with veterans like Verna Jandiroba, who's a high level BJJ black belt. That will come into handy here for Lucindo, who's already shown great ability to control her opponents on the mat from the regional scene. Now, can she do it against higher and more quality level of opponent and Bro Brogan Walker? Possibly. My concern comes with the fact that she's still very young hasn't fought the highest level of competition in the past. And I think that there's a lot of recency bias on the Brogan Walker side here, considering that she came up short against uh, Juliana Miller. And then Juliana Miller just got smoked out by uh, Veronica, Veronica Hardy now. And I think there's a lot of that recency bias going on where people just think very lowly of Juliana Miller now and saying, oh, if Juliana Miller, who's shit beat Brogan Walker, that means that Lucindo should have no issue with her. We, we can't do that MMA math here. Now, a fighter doesn't look the same more often than not every single time out, right? Like, actually, more often than not, they probably will look the same, but, like, there might be an anomaly. Like, take, for example, Brogan Walker has a win over Miranda Maverick, and we all know what we think about Miranda Maverick. So she could pull out that type of performance and upset the big, young favorite here, but I don't want to get caught with minus 300 on Lucindo. I think she wins... But this might be a vet lesson from Brogan Walker as well, especially if Walker can stuff the takedowns and land the cleaner shots in the striking room. Prediction will still be Lucindo, Lucindo by decision, but very be very wary about the spot. Women's MMA, people want to say is way more volatile than men's MMA. Again, I'm kind of against that narrative, but you just got to be smart about the spots that you're picking, even in women's MMA, just as, as you are with men's MMA. But I'm going to pick Lucindo, Lucindo by decision. Just feel sketched out about it. Next up in the lightweight division, we got 29, 14, and 1, King Bobby Green going up against 19 and 6, Jared Gordon. Starting off on the Bobby Green side of things, he's on a two-fight losing streak, which is something we're not used to seeing from the Bobby Green side. He's a very efficient fighter, and even at 36 years old, he's capable of going out there and putting on high-level performances. In the Drew Dober fight, he was having very good success through the first round and a half there until Drew Dober was able to hit that kill shot and put Bobby Green down. That was Bobby's first TKO loss in nearly six years as the previous one to that was his loss against Dustin Poirier. But for the most part, Bobby Green's footwork, head movement, and ability to take the brunt of his opponent's shot and roll with it has allowed him to take his opponent's biggest shots. We saw him stand up to the huge shots of Rafael Fiziev a couple fights ago and still keep chugging forward. It's just some of those times it just won't end up holding up. And that one time with Drew Dober, I think, was a bit of, a bit of an anomaly compared to the Bobby Green that we're used to seeing. But Bobby Green is so good going out there and reaching that three-digit uh, level of significant strikes landed on his opponent, most notably the one that he had against Nazra Hakprast, uh, which was his last win. 
He's a very solid fighter. His takedown defense is improving. He's doing a much better job in terms of getting out of bad positions and getting back to his striking, his output, and his combinations to make it not look so close for the judges' scorecards. So even though he's on a two-fight losing streak here, you got to give him a pass against a guy like Islam Mahachev as well as that you know flash knockout against Drew Dober. He's a very solid fighter and can still go out there and put on very solid performances and very convincing performances. On the flip side for Jared Flash Gordon, he's coming off a quote-unquote loss to Patty Pimblett last time as a lot of people believe he deserved to get his hand raised that night. He was you know, up on takedowns and doing some good work with uh, his damage and I felt like he won some key moments. Unfortunately, the judges ended up favoring Patty Pimblett that night and gave him the decision. But Jared Gordon is a guy that has been relatively overlooked by the betting public for a long time. And I've kind of tried to take advantage of it. I was successful in the Danny Chavez and Joe Selecki fights, came up short in the Grant Dawson fight, and obviously ended up coming short in the Patty Pimblett fight, although I'll take it as a consolation win. Unfortunately, unfortunately, consolation wins don't cash tickets. Uh, when Jared Gordon is on, he does a great job of putting uh, pressure on his opponents with his strikes, with his high output, and his ability to just stay on top of his, his opponent uh, You know, with that pressure, with that forward movement usually when he has good um uh success it comes with him just keeping his opponent on his back foot and keeping his opponent guessing with either any takedown attempts that are coming his way or even just changing levels putting them up against the cage and doing work in those spots it's when he is outskilled in those realms where he seems to run into trouble just as he was against grand dawson who was able to grind him and then uh well there were other performances, even like the uh, Joaquin Silva fight where he was uh, put out in the last round of their fight there. Uh, he's a solid all-around fighter, but I feel like his uh, lack of speed and his uh, abilities when it comes to taking damage, it's starting to go down the drain a little bit, and you have to be concerned when he's fighting better strikers than himself. This feels like a great spot for Bobby Green to go out there and get back on the winning track. He's clearly the better striker in this matchup, and I think that his grappling defense is good enough to keep this fight upright. Obviously, Jared Gordon can get on a in a groove of his own and get his own high-level numbers out there in terms of significant strikes, but that only happens when he's fighting guys that he's clearly better than in the striking realm specifically Leonardo Santos a couple fights ago he's gonna get eaten to bits on the feet by Bobby Green here Bobby will be landing shot after shot combination after combination especially considering the speed advantage he's gonna have in this matchup Bobby Green normally just a decision machine has the potential to land a knockout in this fight considering the striking advantage and speed advantage that he has here not to mention he's probably fired up as hell considering he got knocked out in his last fight by Drew Dober the spots that kind of give me a little bit of pause is the fact that Jaron might have some success in terms of pushing Bobby Green up the, against the cage for a vast majority of uh, minutes in this fight and accrue some damage just there while that might nullify whatever striking success Bobby Green has. However, I'm going to believe in our guy King Bobby Green a little bit more here and believe that he'll be able to stay out of those bad positions and then when he is out at distance, he can pick apart uh, Jared Gordon, do better work and possibly even score a knockout here. So I'm going to say Jared Gordon, or sorry, I'm going to say Bobby Green round two or round three by knockout. Heading up to the middleweight division, we got 19-7 and seven Brad Tavares going up against 22-8 and eight Bruno Silva. 
starting off on the Brad Tavares side, who's coming off of a decision loss to Drikas Duplessis, who that was actually his first victory via decision that night. Brad Tavares was doing a good job in terms of putting combinations and output on him. Unfortunately, he was unable to withstand the big power of Drikas Duplessis. He didn't actually succumb to any knockdowns in that matchup, but he was getting hurt on numerous occasions, which caused uh, Drikas Duplessis a lot of success and eventually getting his hand raised, like I said, by decision. At his best, Brad Tavares is able to put numbers out there, put high-level uh, combinations and strikes on his opponent, and stuff takedowns like he did against Antonio Carlos Jr., as well as Ahmed, uh, Omar Yakhmedov, and he's able to just keep the pressure on him there. He hasn't been as active as he has been in the past. The guy's been in the UFC for over 13 years, so he's a tenured veteran at this point in time. But I still think he has a couple high-level performances left in him with the coaching staff over there at Extreme Couture, with his buddy uh, Eric Nixick. I know that they can devise solid enough plans to go out there and take advantage of favorable matchups. On the flip side with Bruno Silva, he's on a two-fight losing streak and is not looking as much as the killer that he looked like during his three-fight winning streak when he entered the UFC. With wins over Wellington Terman, Andrew Sanchez, and Jordan Wright, a lot of people expected big things from Bruno Silva, especially in the fashion that he was finishing his opponents. But he ran into Alex Pereira, who was obviously the better striker that night. And then in the Bruno Silva, or sorry, the Gerald Mearshart fight, it seemed like Bruno was just stuck in first gear. He just couldn't get anything going. And he even got outstruck by Gerald Mearshart in that second round and eventually club and subbed in that third round. It was a very bad performance. And I wonder if that's a sign of things to come or if that was just an off night altogether. As we know, Bruno Silva at his best is a solid striker with big power. The big question mark in his game is usually his takedown defense and ability to deal with guys that look to ground him over and over again. Even in the Andrew Sanchez fight, he was losing the vast majority of that fight before he was able to pull out victory from the jaws of defeat in the third round of that matchup. Still, a lot of big question marks for Bruno Silva coming into this matchup and whether he can save his UFC career by getting his hand raised. Even though Brad Tavares is 35 years old, I feel like he can go out there and still put on a very solid performance against a guy like Bruno Silva. Bruno Silva, we know, is very much knockout reliant in his matchups. Usually he's getting grinded out and then eventually finds that late knockout. But even against better technical strikers, he gets outstruck. And I think that's what he's dealing with here in Brad Tavares. Brad Tavares does great in terms of throwing combinations, ending with leg kicks or body kicks, and I think he has a good enough overall game that he can even mix in some takedowns here. That'll allow him to drag this fight to the ground, stay away from the big power of, uh, of Pereira, and possibly win this fight be, via decision just with a, a great body of work. But I feel as though, you know, old habits die hard. I feel like Brad Tavares is just going to go out there and just just try to strike with him. But I think that his striking defense is good enough to withstand m much of the big shots that are coming his way from the Bruno Silva side. I get it. Drigas Duplessis won his first ever decision against uh, Brad Tavares. But Brad Tavares did not get knocked down once in that matchup. That leads me to believe that his durability is still intact. He should be able to take the big shots here from Bruno Silva, which likely won't be coming as explosive or from weird angles as they were from Drikas Duplessis. He should be able to see the shots coming a little bit better from Silva. Silva will start to slow down and it'll get easier for uh, Brad Tavares to put these punches on him, put that output on him, and just put an overall MMA performance on here to get his hand raised by decision. Let's go Brad Tavares, like I said, by decision.
Going down in the co-main event slot, we got a banger of a bantamweight bout between Song Yudon, who's coming in with a 19-7-1 record, going up against 20-3 streaking Ricky Simone. Starting off on the Song Yudong side, he's coming off a loss in his main event fight against Corey Sandhagen, which I believe took place in November of last year. Uh, that was a fight that was stopped due to a very bad cut that he had su- suffered. Sorry, that fight was in September. Uh, but the loss came at the beginning, uh, or sorry, just at the end of round four, after Song Yudong suffered a very nasty cut in the second round, and then it just kept getting worse and worse, and eventually the doctor was forced to stop it before they entered the fifth round. He had some solid success of his own that night, but it seemed like Corey Sandhagen was really starting to take over in that matchup. But before that, Song Yudong had a very solid three-fight winning streak with a decision win over Casey Kenny and then back-to-back knockout wins over Julio Arce and Marlon Moraes. Song Yudong is a brawler at best, and I think that you know that might be doing a disservice to his game because the rest of his game is very much coming along. Uh, he came into the UFC as just a guy that wanted to go out there and get knockouts. But since joining the guys over there at Team Alpha Male, uh, he's done a great job in terms of rounding out his grappling game too. He can go for takedowns if he wants, but he uses it very well defensively, keeping fights in the upright position where he normally has his most or his biggest advantage. It seems like guys that normally have his numbers or have his number are the guys that are able to outstrike him from distance, like Kyler Phillips, like Corey Sanhagen, who are able to stay on the outside and that distance against Song, evade his big shots, and then chip away with him or at him with long shots or kicks from distance where they're unable to get hit by the counters of Song. But when guys want to trade in the pocket with Song Yudong, that's where they struggle and that's where they eventually either get knocked out or outstruck and lose a decision. Ricky Simone is on a very solid streak right now. Five straight wins after losing back-to-back fights against Uriah Faber and Rob Font. He's gone out there and put on some great performances. He went out there and defeated Ray Borg by decision. Dispatched of Gaetano Perello via submission. He went to a decision against Brian Kelleher. And then in his last two fights, he comes up with finishes, submitting Hafiela Sunsau, or sorry, uh, knocking out Hafiela Sunsau in brutal fashion. And then submit or club and subbing Jack Shore in his last fight, handing Jack Shore his first ever loss in his career. Ricky Simone is a very strong wrestler and a very thickly built man who does a very good job in terms of using his strength to his advantage. Even if it's not dragging opponents to the ground, even like we saw Jack Shore do a good job in terms of keeping the fight upright, but Jack was unable to keep Ricky Simone off of him and he gave up the first round pretty much just getting controlled against the cage. That shows good work from Ricky Simone and the fact that he doesn't give up on himself even if he's unable to drag fights to the ground. His striking game is still a little bit more of that wrestler striking style, like I said about uh, Christos Yagos earlier in the podcast, where it's just a lot of wide-winging hooks, but he is very fast, he's very explosive, and he has a lot of power, just as Rafael Asuncao and Jack Shore found out the last two times around. But I'm curious to see how he deals with other guys that are able to stop takedowns and are better strikers than him and can evade the big shots or even take the big shots that he's able to dish out. This is a tough matchup to call because... Like, how effective is Ricky Simone's grappling going to be in this matchup? Like, we saw even with him not being able to take down Jack Shore, he was able to accrue some good control time up against the cage. He could he could pin Song up against the cage and get some good, you know, get some good time there. But I think that the striking difference here in terms of the technique and power in which Song Yudong throws with 
will allow him to get ahead when they are back in that open space, which I think Song will inevitably get back out to. Ricky might be able to land a takedown or two, but Song is pretty damn good with getting back to his feet, and I think he'll be able to utilize that de defensive grappling to keep this fight in the run where he is most comfortable with his striking. And I think that even opens up a knockout opportunity for Song in this spot. I get it. Ricky Simone is looking career best. He's looking top five worthy. And I'm a guy that's been big on Ricky Simone in the past. Even picked him in his last matchup against undefeated Jack Shore. But... I think that Song Yudong has the perfect style to give Ricky Simone fits, take advantage of it, and possibly even knock him out. So look for the you know a slow workout period in the beginning here, where Ricky's trying to get his grappling going and Song's trying to defend it. And then as they as Ricky starts realizing, okay, I might not be able to get him down this early in the matchup. I'm going to have to do some striking. In those moments, we'll see Song really start to eat him up, land some big shots, possibly land that knockout and get his hand raised. I like him as an underdog in the spot. I'm going to go with Song Yudong via knockout. Let's call it round one or round two. Time for the main event of the evening. And we got a great heavyweight fight on tap here. As we got 17-1 Sergei Pavlovich going up against 17-3 Curtis Razor Blades. Starting off on the Sergei Pavlovich side, who's on a five-fight winning streak right now after dropping his UFC debut to Alistair Overeem. Since then, he's knocked out all five of his opponents in the first round. Most recently, Tai Tuivasa in a very, you know, uh, slugfest. I, did, I, did, I don't know how else to, to explain that fight, but that was a complete slugfest with both guys willing to just throw down, bite down on their mouthpiece, and throw big bombs. And Sergei Pavlovich has been able to do that with his last two opponents and come out victorious. The Abdurahimov fight was a little bit more of a tactical approach from both guys, where Pavlovich was able to stuff the inevitable takedown that were coming from the Durahimov side and then eventually land a big shot to put him down and ground and pound him. Sergey Pavlovich is, you know, a solid fighter. I'll, I'll give him that. He's a good all-around fighter, but it's really the improvements that he's made in his boxing game that has caused him so much success at this point. But my big question mark is the fact that he just keeps running into guys that are willing to exchange with him in the pocket. We saw when a guy like Alistair Overeem plays with him a little bit more and then mixes in a sneaky takedown with a trip, gets on top of him and ground and pounds him into oblivion. That's how fights can go sometimes against Sergei Pavlovich. But if you willingly want to exchange in the pocket like pretty much all five of his last opponents have done so, things likely won't go your way. But we got to give Pavlovich the credit. He's been making the improvements. He's been fighting in the fire and coming out on top. The guy seems to have a, you know, a meteoric rise to the heavyweight title, especially if he's able to get a win this weekend against Curtis Blades. Speaking of Curtis Blades, he's on a three-fight winning streak since getting knocked out by Derek the Black Beast Lewis, which I believe took place in February of 2021. After that matchup, he was able to put, to, like I said, put together three wins, one of them via decision against Rosenstrike, and then he uh, knocked out Chris Dacus back in March of last year, and then followed that up with a unfortunate TKO via injury win over Tom Aspinall. But one thing that's been pretty clear about Curtis Blades over his last several fights is his striking is something that he's becoming more and more comfortable with. It feels as though when he's fighting these big heavy strikers like Derek Lewis, well specifically Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou, he feels like he needs to get his wrestling going and that's inevitably what got him knocked out against Derek Lewis. He outstruck Derek Lewis in that first round and then eventually ran into an uppercut from Derek, know, with Derek knowing that that eventual level change and shot was coming. And while well, if Curtis Blaze just chose to 
continue striking and using his movement and his uh, kicking game, he likely would have just outstruck Derek Lewis and maybe gotten a takedown much later when Derek Lewis didn't have that knockout power available. But we saw in the Rosen strike fight, he didn't go for desperation takedowns. He stayed comfortable in the striking range, utilizing his movement, his footwork, and his combinations, and he stayed out of trouble. He did the same thing against Dacus. Well, I guess with the Rosenstrike fight, he did eventually land takedowns, but they came a lot easier than when he would just desperate, desperately look for them. In the Chris Dacus fight, that fight completely took place in the striking realm, and Curtis Blades was able to come out with a knockout victory. I think this newfound confidence in his striking is going to give us a new version of Curtis Blades as he tries to make a march back up to a title shot. And given that he's probably one of the best wrestlers that we've seen in the heavyweight division since Cain Velasquez, I think he has a damn good shot of capturing that crown. Maybe if not John Jones, is, or sorry, maybe if John Jones is not at the top by the time he gets another title shot. But Curtis Blades is definitely one of the best heavyweights that's ever competed in the UFC that has not won a, a, a title yet. But the fact that he's still only 32 years old gives us uh, an idea that he'll likely have another title shot or two in his future, especially if he can continue to get his hand raised. I can already foresee the hate that I'll likely be getting in the comment section from picking Curtis Blades once again. But Curtis Blades is, again, the best heavyweight uh, fighter that has yet to touch UFC gold. And he just keeps running into those power punchers. I get it. Sergey Pavlovich is a power puncher as well. But he's a guy that thrives when guys are willing to exchange in the pocket with him. Curtis Blades is not going to do that. Look at the way that Curtis Blades has been striking against his recent opponents. And he utilizes his distance management very well. He does not trade in the pocket. He throws his combinations and gets out before, before his opponents are able to hit him cleanly. He uses his kicks very well. And then when he is able to pull his opponents into his combinations, he changes levels, gets the fight to the ground. I'm expecting the first three to four minutes of this matchup to be very sweaty as a Curtis Blades backer. But if he's able to endure that early knockout power of Sergey Pavlovich, he should be able to get this fight to the ground and he should be able to do good enough work from on top, maybe even find a finish. Something to note, the only loss on Sergey Pavlovich's record came to Alistair Overeem. And Alistair Overeem, who had just recently joined Curtis Blades' camp before that fight, showcased his grappling in that matchup, showcased his ground and pound, and got the finish over Pavlovich. Now he's getting Curtis Blades. <laughs> Again, this is heavyweight. Pavlovich could land that shot. It could put Curtis Blades clean out. It's possible. But the guy with more tools in this matchup, the guy with more stellar experience, the better overall fighter is Curtis Blades. That's why he's the favorite, and that's why I believe he's going to win this fight. It's so hard. I, there's, by no means am I trying to call Curtis Blades the lock of the night. That's going to be outrageous for me to say because I know that he can be knocked out it's possible but I believe we've seen enough improvements in his game over his last you know last couple of fights even before he got knocked out by Derek Lewis we've seen enough improvements from him to know that he can if he has that confidence and belief in himself that he can strike with these guys and just keep safe at distance takedowns will come easier and the rest of his game will flow even easier that's what I'm expecting from him this weekend. Give me Curtis Blades, probably by third or fourth round TKO. He ends and halts the hype train of Sergey Pavlovich and puts himself in line to potentially get another title shot. Maybe even by the end of 2023, it's possible. Who knows how the heavyweight division is going to shake out, but Curtis Blades is one guy that's going to always be viable for a title shot. There you guys go. 
The breakdowns on all 13 fights for this UFC Vegas 71 card. Appreciate you guys checking out the show as always. Hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. Drop a comment. Let me know you don't like some of my picks. Rag on me for my uh, whatever my shitty picks were for last week. It's all good. I appreciate it. Come civil. Come correct. And I'll be more than happy to communicate with you guys. If you want to be shitty about it, be shitty. I don't care. I appreciate the view. Uh, reminder Bellator 294 and Bellator 295 breakdowns coming out Wednesday or Thursday gotta get through all 21 fights still breakdowns for those will already be dropping on the Patreon as you guys are watching this link in the description below if you want to get a nice and early look at it and see where my head is at LFA 157 also going down on Friday breakdowns for those will strictly be on the Patreon appreciate everybody that's been checking out on there and then all the other great stuff that I plugged at the beginning of the show just check it out appreciate the love Appreciate the support. Good luck on all your action this week. I'll be back on Thursday for the Locky Trinity, which I need to get back on track. Not a good run thus far. Got to get it back on track. And then Friday, three best profits, which I can't remember off the top of my head how I did. I don't think I hit uh, them, but I'll, I'll obviously recap it at the beginning of that segment. See you guys on Thursday. Appreciate the love as always. Actually, see you guys Wednesday or Thursday for Bellator, but also for the Lockheed Trading and three best profits. All right, I got to stop jibber jabbering. Love you guys. Appreciate you guys. See you guys later. Peace. Last thing. Bye.